through chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's God's word. You may be seated. Amen. Well, I understand what a um, hard transition that is from sort of surveys and demographic type stuff into studying the scripture. So um, let's take a moment together if we can and let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that as this passage says, it remains forever. God, we pray that we would have ears to hear it, that we would be open to what you would challenge us with today by your word. God, I pray that we could grasp what Peter would would want us to grasp here. Lord, we know that if we can, it will change everything about our lives. It will change our families. It will change our church. It will change our city. And so, God, give us ears to hear it, we pray. In Jesus' great name, amen. Well, we've been studying this book of 1 Peter, and that will take us through most of the, or I guess through the rest of the year. And we're just going chunk by chunk at it, and it's been good to sort of slow down and just look at a, at a book of scripture. Uh, we've looked at this letter. It's written by Peter, who's uh, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Jesus wasn't just one of the 12, or Peter wasn't just one of the 12, though. He was also one of the three. Jesus had a core of three uh, guys, Peter, James, and John, uh, that he spent extra time with, that got to see things that not everyone else got to see. And uh, Peter is one of the key figures in the growth and the birth of the church. And so Peter writes this letter, and so we're eager to hear it because this is coming from someone who was close to Jesus, who was trained uh, by Jesus. And Peter starts off his letter just rejoicing in salvation, saying that God has rescued you in such an amazing way that before the foundation of the world, he set his love on you. And he caused you, it says, to be born again to a living hope, that, that through Jesus, through Jesus' resurrection, you've been given a new life, a new hope. The old has passed, the new has come. And, and and you have a, an inheritance that's for you that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And God is keeping that for you. And God is guarding you and protecting you. This salvation is remarkable. It's so good, Peter says, that in verse 12, the angels long to look into it. Like they can't get enough of trying to go, what is this salvation all about? And there, you get a sense that Peter is saying, hey guys, don't let the angels be more interested in this than you. <laughs> You've got to know that this is absolutely incredible. And so that sets the stage then for what Peter's going to tell us about how to live through the rest of this book. And he says in verse 13, kind of a hinge verse here, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then the next command that he gives us is in verse 15. And this is what we looked at last week. Verse 15 says, But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. We talked last week that holiness is this idea of radical obedience. It's a commitment 
to being righteous. It's a commitment to doing what God says. And we said that a disciple, a disciple of Jesus, is somebody who hears God's voice and does what it says. Not somebody who goes, I agree with that, or I think that's true, or wow, that's a great idea. Someone who does it. Someone who hears God's voice and does it. That's what it is to be holy. And when we think of being holy, we often think of separating ourselves from sin, separating from bad stuff. And to be sure, that's an appropriate way to look at holiness. Peter's saying God is is holy. He's not into anything that's unrighteous. You shouldn't be either. And so for sure, to be holy is to say no to ungodliness. It's to say no to greed and the love of money. It's to say no to sexual immorality. It's to say no to slander and gossip. It's to say no to those things. And so when we think about being holy, often what we're thinking of is a list of sins to avoid. And for sure, that is part of holiness. But Peter, in this particular passage, is going to turn the screws up on us and say it's not just what you stop doing, it's also what you start doing. And this is important because I don't know about you, but I've often thought that I could probably live the Christian life better in isolation. I've thought, you know what, if, if I could just have me and my Bible on a desert island, you know, no television, no internet, no technology, um, no one bothering me, I could just have this perfect relationship with God, always reading his word and praying, and I would grow to be so holy. Ever thought anything like that? Well, what that is, that's a view of holiness that thinks that holiness is only about what you stop doing. But Peter is going to tell us that holiness is also what you start doing, namely that you start loving. And you can't love, you can't, uh, you can't obey the commands that God gives to love if you're just by yourself. We need people. You can't grow as much spiritually. You can't grow as much in holiness alone as you can with people. We need people. We need one another. And Peter here is specifically writing to a group of people. He's assuming that you're in a community. He's he's saying here, none of this can be lived out by yourself. You need a community. And the community specifically that the Scripture calls us to is the community of the church. We need the church. And when I say church, I don't just mean the Sunday gathering. I definitely don't mean the building. We need the people of God if we're going to grow I love how Kevin DeYoung says it in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness. He says, In more than a decade of pastoral ministry, I've never met a Christian who was healthier, more mature, and more active in ministry by being apart from the church. But I have found the opposite to be invariably true. The weakest Christians are those least connected to the body. And then this is devastating. And the less involved you are, the more disconnected those following you will be. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. He says, if you want to pass on a vibrant faith to your children and grandchildren, you aren't going to do it by separating from the church. Now, you all are here, and you might be going, what's he badgering about that? I'm I'm here, right? I'm in in the church. 
But, but here's what I know. If you get involved in this church, and those of you who are involved in this church, you've already experienced this. There's one thing that I know you'll experience if you get involved in the life of any church. You know what it is? Disappointment. Guaranteed. You'll be disappointed that the songs were too loud, or they were too quiet, or there weren't enough hymns, or there were too many hymns. You'll be disappointed with that. You'll be disappointed by a sermon I preach sometimes. Maybe every week. Right? You'll be disappointed by a decision that's made. You'll be disappointed by a ministry that you loved that got changed or got cut. You'll be disappointed by someone who leaves. You'll be disappointed by uh, the, the people weren't as compassionate to you as you felt like you needed. You, you'll just be disappointed. You'll be let down. And what you'll be tempted at that moment to do is go, you know what? I love Jesus. I don't need this whole church thing. I'm just, you know, I'm going to love God on a golf course. I'm going to love God on the mountain bike. I'm going to love God just by myself at Starbucks with a Bible and a cup of coffee. You're, you're destroying your faith if you do that. And so Peter is calling us here to be part of a community, and specifically in this passage, he's telling us more about what holiness is in the community. And holiness, get this, this is the big idea here. Holiness is not just stop sinning, it's pursue love. You are never more holy than when you love another person. And the main command of this passage is in verse 22. Let's read it together. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the command. You want to flesh out what does holiness look like? For sure it says no to, to immorality and sin, but it also says yes to love. We need one another. And that's important to know. It's important to see that this whole passage is about this call to love one another, because otherwise there's kind of these, these scriptures that if you just took them by themselves, you wouldn't necessarily know how they all fit together. And so the whole idea of this passage is love. Love one another. Here's where we're going to go today. I've got three questions that I want to wrestle through here together as we look at the Scripture. Uh, here they are. Number one, how should we love? Number two, why should we love? And number three, how can we keep loving, especially when it's difficult? How should we love? Why should we love? How can we keep loving? And I'm going to tell you up front here, I'm preaching this on the authority of what God says, not on the authority of how great of a loving person I am. Okay? So I know, I, I've got a couple friends that they are so, they're just such loving people. And when you talk with them, you get the feeling you're the only person that exists in the world. Do you know people like that? I'm not one of them. Right? None of you pictured me in your head when you, thought, when you thought of that person, right? I'm not that way, and I long to be that way. The Scripture calls me to love, and we're going to look at that in a powerful way. And so I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm on this journey with you. We're on this journey together. In fact, I've been um, blessed and, and encouraged through uh, the last, I don't know, couple months and over the next, uh, over a year, I'm, I'm committed to going through a discipleship process that's Lord willing, going to help me become more loving. And I'm doing that with a couple other leaders. And, and so far, it's going okay, but there's a lot of growth to be had. And so, so we're on this together, right? 
we, we all could appreciate this call to hear from God's word, right? Amen. You're, you're not, you haven't arrived in love yet? Okay, well then let's look at what, what the scripture has to say. Number one, how should we love? The command here is straightforward, but incredibly difficult. Love one another. Now, love has been really sort of misunderstood, right? What is love? There's even a song, right? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Right? And, and love is thought of romantically, and it's about feelings. and about the, What is love biblically? Biblically, here's, here's a two-word biblical definition of love. It's unconditional cherishing. Unconditional cherishing. That is an incredibly high calling. Unconditional means without condition, no exceptions, uh, not, because, not, not because you've had something happen, now you love and return. It's unconditional. And it's cherishing. Cherishing is looking at another person and seeing them, seeing their heart, seeing their hopes, seeing their needs, and binding yourself to them, committing to help them flourish. That's what cherishing is. So it's unconditional cherishing, no matter what. Love this quote by Paul Miller. He says this. He says, Love always involves binding yourself and your life to another person. This leads to suffering. Jesus bound himself to us at the cross. He took on himself all the agony, all the sin of his church. He suffered for us. Look at that first sentence. Love always involves binding yourself and your life to another person. See, when we talk about biblical love, we're not talking about the emotional feelings of look at all that I'm going to get out of this. This is binding yourself, tying yourself, committing yourself to the good of another person. And the person, inevitably, whoever you bind yourself to, is going to suffer because this life is filled with suffering and pain and difficulty. There's, sure, there's moments of great celebration, but inevitably, if you bind yourself to meet their needs, to serve them, you're going to suffer. So the call to love is not a call to say, hey, go be fulfilled by everyone else. It's saying, come die. The call to love is a call to die. He says, love one another. He could say, die for one another. And, and, and not in like, a, go be crucified for each other, but, but live the daily sacrifice of personal death for the good of others. And Jesus did that. That's why this is so hard. That's why it just got really quiet. That's why it feels overwhelming. Die to my, man, I, and if, you, if you're like me, you go, gosh, and I'm just so, I don't, I'm so selfish, I don't even know how selfish I am. How am I gonna ever, man, it you, feels like you're calling me to, to Z, and I'm at A, where do, I, how, where do I start? So I want to tell you a place to start. You start by looking. It starts with your eyes. It starts with seeing. It starts with looking. That's where love begins. I want to show you this in the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 7 is a place you can go. Uh, we'll put this on the screen as well, but if you want to kind of follow along in your Bible, uh, it's Luke chapter, uh, chapter 7, verses 11 
through 16. Right? If our model for love is Jesus, then we want to go, okay, how did Jesus love? What did Jesus do? And it says this in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So you get the scene. Jesus and his disciples are walking up. There's a town. The town is Nain. uh, And and they're coming out of the gates. And so the way these would be set up is there would be walls around a town. And there would be like one gate, one entrance and exit point. And they walk up and there's this commotion. It says there, there was a considerable crowd following this funeral procession. Now, we don't know what considerable means. Is that 50? Is that 500? Is that 1,000? We don't know. But there's a crowd, and there's a, a body being carried out, right? And, and it says here on a, on a, on a buyer or a, like a pallet kind of thing, the people would have thought that if, if you touched the body, you would be unclean. And so they wouldn't have been just holding the body. They would have been holding a pallet and walking through. Inevitably, there would have been uh, people mourning, probably some sort of music going. I mean, this is a loud commotion, right? You walk, I mean, just picture, you walk up to the city and it's like, whoa, look at what's going on here. How does Jesus see this situation? What does he see? Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, And said to her, do not weep. What did Jesus see? He saw the mother. Right? And there's all these other things to see. And that's who Jesus sees. He sees the mother, right? He doesn't see the dead guy. He doesn't see the crowd. He doesn't see the mourners. He sees her. He looks, right? Sometimes we think about Jesus because we know he's the son of God and we assume that everything good that Jesus did, he did because like he had this like Superman S underneath his robe, you know, the, the deity of Christ. And, and to be sure, we believe that Jesus was fully God, fully divine. But Jesus lived in perfect obedience as a man, fully man. And so Jesus in his full humanity sees and he looks. And he sees a situation, and he sees this woman. And it said in verse 12 that, that he, this was her only son, and she was a widow. And so he sees her, and he puts himself in her shoes. Right, a widow with no son, particularly in that culture, would be in for a lot of trouble. No financial sustenance, no provision, be at the mercy of maybe other family or friends that might come along to support her. Difficult situation. And perhaps Jesus in that moment thought of his own mother. Perhaps he thought of what his own mother would feel like when he died. We don't know what Jesus felt, but it started with him seeing. The Lord saw her. He had compassion on her. And he said to her, he moved toward her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the beer. I don't know how to say that word. Buyer, beer. I've never even heard that word. Have you ever heard that word? And the bearers stood still. So that's the pallet that he's on. 
And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So Jesus, seeing the situation, moved with compassion, goes and he touches the body. Remember, they would not touch the body because it was unclean. How is it that Jesus can touch the body without being made unclean? It's that Jesus is so righteous, Jesus is so clean, that when he touches something unclean, he doesn't catch its uncleanness, it catches his righteousness. And that boy is made clean and is raised. You imagine the crowd, what they would have been thinking and watching this, and oh my goodness, this young man is is raised. Verse 15, and the dead man sat up. You ever been to a funeral where that happened? I haven't. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So Jesus somehow takes him and presents him to the woman. Right? This, this is love. That's what love is. It's seeing, having compassion, being moved to act. But where did it begin? It began with seeing. And so what if our love began with seeing? What if it began by putting down the iPhone and turning off the computer and turning off the TV for a moment and seeing? What if it began with seeing a person and asking their situation and envisioning yourself in their shoes? What if it just began there? It would be incredibly like Jesus. See, this wasn't just an isolated experience for Jesus. This is a pattern. This is how Jesus loved. I want you to see this. I want to just blitz through a bunch of places where you see Jesus seeing, see him looking. This is where it begins. When he feeds the 5,000, it says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Same thing with the 4,000. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He heals a man with a withered hand. It says, After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So in this case, he sees a man with a withered hand. He sees all these uncompassionate people who say, You can't heal him. It's the Sabbath. You can't do that. And he looks at this situation, and it makes him angry. And he says, Justice needs to be done. And he's stirred to love by what he sees. With the rich young ruler, the man who said, Jesus, I want to follow you, and I, I've, I've, I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus says, fine, sell everything you have and follow me. And he's like, I don't think so. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the wee little man. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. And said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, same kind of thing. When Jesus therefore saw Lazarus' sister weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. When he sees Jerusalem, he does this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. There's another place where it says that Jesus saw the city, that it was like a sheep without a shepherd. He wept. And Peter experienced this. When Peter himself betrayed Jesus, it says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Looking is where it begins. 
Right? What, what was it that so devastated Peter? It was that the Lord looked at him, and he knew the, the loving look of the Lord Jesus. And he knew he betrayed him, and it crushed him. So love begins with looking. So, so the, the invitation for this week is look, slow down, turn it off, look around. And then you can begin to move forward in love. All right, we're not very far in this passage, are we? Back to chapter 1, verse 22. Love one another. Again, we're still asking this question, how, how do we love? Well, that's how we love. We do unconditional cherishing. It begins with looking. But Peter here tells us how to love. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestly means uh, vigorously. It means fervently. It means eagerly. So this is not going... Well, God tells me I have to love you, so I'm going to love you. This is, I want to. I'm so moved by the love that God has shown me, I'm going to love you eagerly, it says, from a pure heart. So eagerly, because I want to, from a pure heart, not with any ulterior motive. I'm not loving to get something from you. I'm not loving to manipulate you. I'm not loving you in this way so that I'll get this in return. It's from a pure heart. It's simply binding myself to you for your thriving, period. Right? A lot of the, a lot of the gifts that we give to each other, a lot of the love that we give to each other, we're really just giving to ourselves. I know if I do this, she'll give that in return. It's not love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's how we should love. Next question then is why? Why should we love? That's how, earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Why should we love? Well, Peter tells us this as well. And he gives us two reasons in this verse. The first one is at the beginning of verse 22. Uh, He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Here's the reason, the first reason why. It's the whole point of obedience. He says, remember, right before this, he said, be holy. Purify yourself from these unclean things in your life. Right, listen. Let's get this real clear here. Ultimately, you can never cleanse your sin before God on your own. You get that? There's only one person that can do that, and that's Jesus by his blood. But you can begin to live obediently in such a way that, that your life is, is noticeably cleaner to the people around you. And Peter says here, having purified your souls by your obedience, having pursued this cleaner way of living, for a sincere brotherly love. The whole point of saying no to sin, of, saying, of stopping sinning, is to pursue love, right? right? The reason we say no to greed is so that we can say yes to loving people generously. The reason we say no to sexual immorality is so that we can say yes to intimacy with a spouse. The reason we say no to gossip and slander is so that we can build one another up in love with encouragement. Right? He's saying the whole point of your pursuing obedience is love. It's to have this brotherly love. You're you're part of a family. And that leads us into the next reason. So it's the whole goal of obedience. You're part of this new family. And this new family is an eternal one. 
That's his point in verse 23. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since, that, that means because, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Here's Peter's argument. Peter is saying, love because you've been made new and you've been born into an eternal family. The scripture often talks about seed, right? And when we think of seed, we think of plants. But the Bible talks about it that way, but it also has the idea of, of, of seed is how families and generations are passed on, right? I mean, we get, we get that idea. He's saying you've been born again, not of a perishable seed. You are already born into a family line that's dying and decaying. You already had that. You weren't born into a perishable family. You're born into an imperishable one through the Word of God. And this Word of God never fails. It never falls. It never ends. That's his point in verse 24. All flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. Here's what he's saying. He's saying love one another because you're part of a family that's never going to end. Our daughters are uh, six and almost four. We're constantly telling them, love one another. And we tell them specifically, your sister is your best friend. Why? Because she's your sister. That's how it's always going to be. She's always your best friend. Well, what about someday when I get married? Then you get two best friends. But, but our, our reasoning there is your family. Family sticks together. And, and what Peter here is saying, he's saying, you're being, you've been born again through God's word into a new family. Family sticks together. Look around. This is your family. Some of you are like, I already have a family, and it's a mess. I don't want another one. Well, congratulations. Here we are. Right? And this is a diverse family. This is a diverse family ethnically. This is a diverse family in terms of age. This is a diverse family in terms of experience and background. And we're not even all that diverse. We're not all that diverse, and yet we're amazingly diverse. And, and, and Peter says, this is your family. Be holy by loving one another. Stick to each other. Hold firm. You've been born again into this family. So that's why we should love and the third question is, how do we keep on loving? Right, right? So we feel stirred up and we go, yes, this is why God's made me. I'm part of this family. I've got I to gotta love. I've got to look at opportunities to love people. Yes, but then you wake up the next day. And then what? And then what about the day after that? I mean, this is a call that never stops, right? I mean, this is a, this is a heavy thing. And so Peter gives us some ways that we will continue in this path of love. Uh, the first one is by not drinking relationship poison. That's described in verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter says in light of this new reality, in light of this new family, in light of this call to love, Here's some stuff you've got to get rid of. You've got to put this away. And he lists sin here. And I, I love this list because um, most of the sin lists in the Bible, there's a lot of sin lists, right? 
they all are kind of the same. And they start with sexual immorality and, and all these things. And this is all about what happens in the context of relationship. And this says, here's the poison that will ruin your relationships, that will ruin your ability to love. It's malice. That's ill intent. Rejoicing when things go wrong for someone else. You ever done that? Ouch. All deceit. Right? Fudging the truth a little bit. Exaggerating here. Twisting it just a bit so that you look just a little bit in a better light. It's deceit. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is about putting on a face, putting on a show, trying to make yourself appear like something you're not. Just get rid of that. Envy is jealousy and wanting what others have. And slander, tarnishing someone through your words, tarnishing their reputation. And, and, and it's amazing, even those of us who feel like we would never do that about someone we know, we're happy to do that about celebrities and athletes and anyone else. Just say whatever we want. And he says, put that away. That word, put away, has the idea of clothing that you take off. Take that off. Take that trash out. This is just going to poison your life. The more clutter of this you get filled up, the more your life is just going to be a stinky mess. And the more the church and the more your family and the more your home is going to be a mess. You're going to turn into a, a hoarder. Right? You ever watch these shows, Hoarders? How many of you are going to end up on that show? I hope not. But what happens, right? They've, people have allowed all this stuff to just clutter their home. And this to me is like a list of, of, of spiritual clutter, spiritual filth that we just let. And we get used to it, right? And these hoarder people, right? They've got boxes and clothes everywhere, and they've developed these little paths of how they walk through the house. And they're used to it. They're comfortable in it. And we're comfortable in this way of life. We're comfortable with a little lie here and a little root against them here and a little, I I don't really want their best there. And we're fine with that. And Peter says, get rid of it. You're not going to be able to keep going in love unless you just renounce that. Say, no, I'm not going to pursue that. And instead, pursue God. That's what he says in verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. He says, in the same way that a newborn infant longs for milk, which is how? How does a newborn long for milk? Ladies? Incessantly? Automatically? Eagerly? Right? If they don't get it, you know. Right? He's, he's saying, that's how eager you should be for pure spiritual milk. He says, long for it. That word means crave. Right? So, so pregnant ladies, you know about craving. Right? The rest of us know about craving. Right? We all have these times where you go, man, this, like, this just sounds so good right now. Right? Like how good do Oreos dipped in milk? You're all done. You're all going to go get Oreos with milk. I just planted the seed. It's inception. It's in you, right? Or whatever it is, right? We have these cravings. He's saying, crave the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. The big question here then is, what's the pure spiritual milk? 
right? He said, I have something I want you to crave. Like a baby craves it. You got to crave it that way. Pure spiritual milk. A lot of us go, okay. What's that? What is the pure spiritual milk? Now, if you have a a New American Standard translation, it will say something like, long for the pure milk of the word. Um, there's some discussion about what this word spiritual means. Uh, and so a lot of times this will get interpreted as the idea of long for God's word, right? He just talked about the word of God back in verse 24. So instead of putting off these things, long for the Bible. Now, get this, I don't disagree with that in the sense that I think you should long for the Bible. If you read Psalm 119, which is all about God's Word, there's a ton of places in there that talk about craving God's Word. So I think that's a fully appropriate application of this. But I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. I don't think he's limiting it to just crave the Bible. I I think what he's talking about is crave the Lord's presence. And here's, here's where I get that. I'm not, I don't get to just make this up, right? I have to have a reason why I come to conclusions. Here's, here's my reasoning. is verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's a direct allusion to Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's saying you've tasted that God is good. And in God's presence, there isn't any of this malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So so put that away and pursue God. Pursue God's presence. Well, where is God's presence found? In his people, the body of Christ. In fact, we're going to look in the coming weeks at how the church is the new temple of the Lord. The temple is where the presence of God dwelled. And so I think he's saying... Pursue God's presence. Pursue it in his people. Pursue it in his word. Do whatever it takes to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because if you do that, what you'll find is that God's presence is incompatible with all the the sin mentioned in verse 1. So think about this for just a moment as a contrast. Look at at James chapter 3. We'll put it here. James is the brother of Jesus, which, by the way, I think one of the best proofs that Jesus was the Son of God is that his brother believed him? I mean, what would it take to convince your brother that you were the Son of God? And, and his brother said, this is the Son of God, and he wrote this letter. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You know what he's saying? You go, God, I love you. I'm here for you. You're mighty to save. You're wonderful, amazing grace. But I don't like that person very much. And you, and you slander them. saying those things don't match. And so what Peter's saying, he's saying, put away the junk that gets in the way of, of, of pursuing love and pursue God. Pursue God in the presence of God's people. You've tasted that he's good. Pursue relationship with one another. Pursue relationship that centers on his unchanging word and go hard after God together. Can you imagine for a moment if we did that? Can you imagine what would happen if we could love in this kind of sacrificial, steady way? 
Now, I, I get that this just feels impossible. Because as I'm saying it, it feels impossible. Which is the whole reason why if you do it in your own strength, if you do it just out of resolve, out of, I'm going to be better, you'll never do it. The only way you can do it is if you can see that this is also what's been done for you. This is how Jesus has loved you. See, Jesus doesn't just model love to a widow or to 5,000 people on a hillside or to Lazarus. He does it to you. He loves you this way. He looks at your need. And he binds himself to you so much so that it takes him to a cross where he gets the punishment you deserve. That's the Apostle John's point in 1 John chapter 3. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Till our hearts have been melted by that, we'll never love. And unless we continually rediscover and remember how Jesus has loved us, we'll never have the power to keep going. What a privilege we have as God's people. And as I think about our church here, just to kind of apply this to us as a congregation, one of the things I love about our church is this is a friendly group of people for the most part. There's a few exceptions, but there are few. <laughs> and honestly, if you said, well, name a few, I, I don't think I even could. We constantly hear people come here and go, man, there's just so much love. Like that you walk through the, the lobby of love is what Jeffrey Wilcox, one of our elders, calls it. You know, I mean, there's just, it's just incredible. And it's welcoming. But, but listen, love is more than just the initial welcome. And we're, we're doing great there. And, and as, we, as we mature and as we develop and as we form deeper relationships with one another, what God's also calling us to do is not just a lot of friendly how you doings, but a lot of... I'm going to die to myself to serve you. It's a high call. And by God's grace, we'll go there. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your unchanging word. Thank you that you call us and invite us to this opportunity to love one another. God, thank you that you gave your son for us. Thank you that he is the example of love. And so, God, I pray for us this week. I pray that we could look at one another, that husbands would look at their wives, that wives would look at their husbands, that parents would look at their children and, and friends would look at one another. God, I pray that we could look at the people that we work with. I pray we could move towards them with your love. We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen.